It's an honor and a privilege to have Pastor Buse with us today. Uh, Pastor Buse pastored the London's All Souls Church for 22 years, has been awarded the Order of the British Empire by Her Majesty the Queen in 2005, has written over 20 books, hosts a dedicated sermon website, and Bible programs such as Book by Book, which has a daily audience of over a million viewers. Married to Pam, who is with us here today as well, and they share 11 grandchildren and live in the UK near London. This Tuesday, uh, I will also have the privilege as Southeastern California Conference of Seventh day Adventists is having all the pastors gathered, and Pastor Buse will be our teacher for the day and will be helping us to continue to grow as preachers of the gospel of Jesus. And so, Pastor Buse, as a fellow follower of Jesus, and one who preaches the good news of Jesus Christ in the world today. We welcome you, and we're honored to have you with us today. Let's welcome Pastor Buse here today. Oh, my. Oh, my. It's wonderful to be here in this fellowship. Pam and I are sitting there, and I feel I'm back at All Souls Church again with the magnificent music and the magnificent singing of you here. It wasn't it your, own, well, your great evangelist of over a century ago, D.L. Moody, who once said, music and the Bible are the two great agencies with which to reach the world. And listening to the music just now, and also the self-effacement of those who are singing at the front to lead us very moving for us to experience that. Thank you so much, musicians. We're very grateful for what you've been bringing to us this morning already and the reverence of this time together that we're having. So if there's somebody new here, you just keep on coming. You're not going to find anything better. It's wonderful. Well, so good morning, everybody, and warm greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. From my wife, Pam, here then. And you put our pictures in your little paper. That was astounding. And then uh, we're with our mentor here, Dr. Larry Thomas of Loma Linda. And he's our, he's our mentor, he's our driver, he's our bag carrier. We're very grateful to him as well. The three of us say a heartfelt thank you to your pastor, John for his kind invitation to come and see you all this morning at Cali Mesa. For Pam and me, this is like a second American honeymoon because only three and a half years ago, I as a widower married Pam, a widow, uh, at All Souls Church where I had, as you say, sir, I'd been a leader for quite a few years there. And indeed, Larry had been a member there for a while. And so Pam and I had our honeymoon, actually in America, but the other side, in North Carolina. So this is our second honeymoon, isn't it, darling? I think it is. Now for our message this morning, then, I'm turning to Psalm 11. And let's open it up straight away. If you've got a Bible with you, open it. Feel free to follow along. The key theme, it's a question. Here it is. Psalm 11, verse 3, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? When foundations are shaking. Yes, we heard about that 
in our beautiful prayers just a few moments ago. I was once rather honoured to be asked by the Speaker of the British Parliament, he's like the kind of controlling man, I was asked to lead the morning prayers, prayers that began the proceedings every day in the British Parliament. And every day for the last few hundred years, right up to the present day, these set prayers are used in Parliament. And one of the prayers includes these words I'm reading now. Grant that we having thy fear before our eyes, and laying aside all private interests, prejudices, and partial affections, the result of all our counsels may be to the glory of thy blessed name. That's how they pray in Parliament every day. This is prayed daily in the name of the Speaker then, and the Prime Minister, Leader of the Opposition, all the members of Parliament. And now, with a sense of our British history, well, anyone can chart over these past years the steady undermining of the Christianity that gave birth to all of Europe from the first century onwards, resulting in our very lawmaking, leading to the language and terms of the Bible in common use, the establishing of spires and chapels across the country, the epic of the Reformation, the writing of Bunyan, the preaching of Spurgeon, the awakenings under Wesley, Whitfield, Moody, Billy Graham, the triumph of the Sabbath schools, the rock face of marriage, the hold that the one day in seven has always had upon our country in the UK. Today, pretty much every step taken by our modern politicians, the educationists and the media barons seems bent upon dismantling the one mighty understanding of life that lifts a civilization namely the Christian faith as set out in the Bible. They don't greatly care, it seems. What one of the historians said when he wrote, the Christian religion stabilizes society without sterilizing it. It seems across the leadership of Europe, much of the West, that's all been forgotten. And then certain revisionist elements in church leadership today, our side of the Atlantic, seem to be caving in to the cultural demands of today, apparently forgetting that the church exists not to mirror and copy the surrounding culture, but to challenge it. So to come back to Psalm 11, verse 3, we can echo the question of David, the psalmist and the king, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the answer from this psalm is quite a lot, actually. What can the righteous do? David's answers to his own people apply to all who want to follow the way of righteousness in every generation. His words speak to us this very day. The Bible seems to tell us when the foundations are being destroyed, first, stay resilient. Don't get isolated. That seems to be one of the first lessons we learn here. Think about David, the psalmist, in his own time. 
in flight from King Saul. His life was under threat from a corrupt and oppressive regime far from home. Yet we can read here how David resists those friends who urge him to give up and make a run for it to some chosen hiding place of his in the mountains. Verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge, he says. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? That's the temptation. When confidence in the main direction of a society has become sapped. When those you've trusted in to take command have apparently forgotten the blessings of the past. When reckless political or ethical innovations are embarked upon, then we can be tempted mentally to give up and just go with the flow. And yet under those pressures, when the people whom David calls the upright in heart are being targeted by the arrows of the wicked, you see the words there in verse 2? The believer can learn to say, along with David, in the psalm's opening words, in the Lord I take refuge. That has to be us too. David's determination was to stand firm in his loyalty to the Lord who had never left him from the time of the defeat of the giant Goliath onwards. And David also determined to stay close to those others who were still faithful and in fellowship Together they would fight on for another day in the confidence that standing united, tomorrow belonged to them. Saul, one of these days, he'd be gone. That's one of the great secrets that lies behind Christianity's ongoing march. There have been enough people who learned to stand unitedly firm across government after government, scandals, compromises, coups, and even martyrdoms. Long after the time of Saul, it would be the Caesars of Rome, all-powerful, even godlike. More than one Caesar called himself Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. Those Roman Caesars... One was killed by his own son. One went went mad. One went blind. One was strangled. One was drowned. Two committed suicide. Five were assassinated. Eight were killed in battle. The last of them, before Rome began to go Christian, was the Emperor Julian, who had done his best to obliterate Christianity and restore the worship of the gods. But then just days after the Battle of Maranga, June the 26th, 363 AD, Julian lay dying from a sword wound. And it was said that his closing words were, Vicisti Galilei, you have won, Galilean. (laughs) And that's it. That's how history works. The Church of Jesus Christ has never looked powerful, not on its own. It's in the Lord we take refuge, and when we can take refuge in him, that's the vital thing. 
I think of that time in the center of Africa, Rwanda, when they had that terrible war and genocide and tribe against tribe. You may have remembered it in the papers. One of the Christian leaders took his flock and several other flocks up to the top of a hill. <clears throat> and there they had a great convocation, teaching, preaching, baptizing, encouraging, praying, worshiping, singing, to encourage each other to stay together. <clears throat> then a messenger came up the hill and saying, the other crowd are at the bottom of the hill ready to kill you. They are coming up the hill very shortly. You're going to be killed. The leader thought about it. Then he remembered the story of Elisha in the Bible, who with his servant was confronted by hordes of enemies. And he encouraged his servant who was so afraid. And he said, those that are with us are more than those that are with them. Then the servant suddenly saw in the vision chariots and horses defending them on all sides. This leader at the top of the hill remembered that. And he said to the reporter who'd come up, go down the hill and tell those people who are coming to kill us, yes, you can come to kill us, but this hill is surrounded by angels. You've got to get past the angels first if you're going to come and kill us. Have a try. He looked down and he saw the messenger going down, and little by little, he saw that army down the below disperse, move away. It doesn't always happen like that. We know very well. There'll be times when we look like going downhill, but if we can stand alongside each other, never getting isolated, it's wonderful to see the class just before this service began and how the friends there, some of you were there, I'm sure, just holding together, teaching each other, that's wonderful. We will live to fight another day, it seems, even when everything else has disintegrated. So stay resilient, firmly with others then. That's the message. Don't get isolated. What else can the righteous do when the foundations are being destroyed? Why, secondly, we can learn this. Stay vigilant. Don't get diverted. That's a message for any church. And indeed, the only way to see the real picture clearly is to learn to see the picture as heaven sees it. Bit by bit, we try to look at life as the Lord Jesus would look at life. And that verse 4 here tells us that from his heavenly throne, the Lord, look at the words, he observes the sons of men, his eyes examine them. So, sisters and brothers, the eternal watcher is the Lord. He misses nothing. So what human attempts to destroy a nation's foundations ever can escape the eyes of Jesus? That's a great ground of confidence for us. He sees the whole picture. And as we prayerfully keep close to his word and come to him day by day in prayer, we too can begin to see precisely what is going on. Like the prophet Habakkuk of old, who stayed vigilant on his watchtower. That way, we can be far ahead of the short-sighted approach of leaders to whom votes count more than almost anything else. The Christian 
lives, prays, plans in the long term, knowing that the foundations of any society, it never consists of things like inflation, taxes, housing, petrol prices, are those things that have their importance, but they are only the scaffolding of a nation, never the foundation. We dare not confuse scaffolding with foundations, otherwise we really have become short-sighted. Out in the Mediterranean Sea, I once visited the ruins of a place called Knossos in Crete. It's one of the oldest cities in the world dates back to before the time of the Greek poet Homer. And there, <coughs> in that part of the Mediterranean, they had developed a highly sophisticated, we can only call it a scaffolding of civilization. Staircases, you know, theaters, schools, anti-earthquake inventions, even sanitary systems complete with water flushes, but Knossos could only rise, flourish, and then die, apparently through violence. Many of its achievements had to be reinvented centuries later. And the pattern seems to be that a civilization falls from within itself, usually. Not from outside, but from within itself. A Scotsman. <clears throat> After he visited the excavations at Knossos, made the comment, the lesson of Knossos is that good plumbing will not save a civilization. <laughs> Here's David. He's aware that Saul's regime is never going to last. Life was then precarious. But above all that is the Lord on his throne. And David, by his vigilance, is not going to be swerved. He realizes, and we must take it in as well, that it was never the politicians, never the military, who changed the world. They don't. Always, it's the ideas people. And in the case of those who know God in Jesus Christ, it's even more than an idea. It's a firm plan born in the mind of heaven itself, culminating in a person, Jesus Christ, very God of very God, who has come among us to live, serve, die, and rise. <clears throat> His Spirit taking the message worldwide, and at the end of the age, coming back in person in power and great glory, bringing in the new heaven and the new earth. Meanwhile, raising a family of belief, and our task is to win that world as well as we can, and so bring glory to Him. We're part of that. We may say, oh, what can I do, little me, to win the world? I put that to Pam, actually, while preparing this message. Well, she replied, I remember hearing a powerful message in southeast England where the speaker said, change one life, and one life can change another life. That's how it's done. That's how the great Christian leader Augustine saw it. 16 centuries ago when he wrote, one loving spirit sets another on fire. Is that how it happened with you? Was there a friend somewhere? He said, come along with me, come on. Let's go and see this together. Let's go and listen to what's happening at church. 
Well, the very thing was to happen after the martyrdom of Stephen, the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts. To see it all from heaven's viewpoint, that martyrdom of Stephen resulted in a great persecution of the church at Jerusalem. And then we read in Acts verse 8, verse 1, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Then we learn how the scattering of those Christians from the one center of Jerusalem was a blessing in disguise. Because from then on, Christ's witnesses were being spread out around the 58,000 miles of Roman trunk road that surrounded the Mediterranean. There they were to sing, tell, and witness of Christ and his saving power. One loving spirit setting another on fire. That's how it's done. Oh, eventually, Rome itself was amazingly to go Christian, at least nominally. Then came an apparently terrible setback when the pagan Gothic hordes descended on Rome and wiped it out, burnt it to the ground in a single day, August the 24th, 410 AD. One day, Rome, gone. Augustine, then aged 57, was in Carthage, well, that's Libya today, when the news came through. The Roman Empire, and seemingly Christianity with it, has gone. The Christians were lamenting. What's happened to our foundations? Some were even saying that this perhaps had happened as a revenge from the old gods like Jupiter, whom they had abandoned years back. Maybe they should return to the old ways again. But no. Augustine, in his far-sighted vigilance, would not be diverted. Rome, he asked, whoever is interested in preserving Rome? It's just an earthly city. We're founded on a city which is above, a city which is forever. And with that, Augustine, that mighty teacher, began to write his book. It was entitled De Civitati Dei, that is, concerning the city of God. And he contrasted the cities of this world in all their inevitable sin and, dis and decay with the shining city which is above. And he said, we have to live and do our duty in our earthbound cities as citizens. But, he said, forever living is another dimension in our lives also, that of the firmer foundation of the city whose builder and maker is God. That's, he said, that's what's going to drive us. Well, Augustine's book ran into something like 17 volumes. It took him years to write, but it influenced and profoundly shaped Europe for the next thousand years. Europe today doesn't want to know. In its new constitution, no mention was made of its Christian heritage, whatever. The unbelievably narrow worldview of the average citizen in the West today focuses on little more than what? Waking, eating, working, eating again, working again, watching perhaps World Series on TV, hoping at the end for a few kind words about oneself in the local newspaper, and that's it. And so many church leaders talk glibly of today 
certainly in Britain, they talk about it as a post-Christian era. I don't like that. That's not for the the far-seeing believer. We're not to be diverted into an apathetic cul-de-sac of a post-Christian era. It's much more exciting than that. Much more exciting. No, like Paul the Apostle, we are are on the edge of a new pre-Christian era or coming onto it. That's exciting. People have come into it with little baggage really from the past. They know nothing, many of our neighbors. We've got something completely novel to present them with. That's wonderful, and that's going to happen. There's much that the vigilant can do when the foundations are being destroyed then. We're to see to it as the Lord sees it all. So two actions. Stay resilient, don't get isolated. Stay vigilant, don't get diverted. And a third piece of action might be described like this. Stay valiant, don't get intimidated. From the first hour of waking, we have got to be ahead of the devil with our armor on every day. He likes to get up early, we've got to be ahead of him. So as our heads come off the pillow, Pam and I, we wake up, and quite often we say to each other, we murmur each other, another day of adventure with the Lord Jesus Christ on planet Earth. (laughs) Of course, our day of adventure sometimes begins, well, rather feebly, with just a cup of English tea. (laughs) But then we say, even then while the kettle is boiling, we're thinking, in a few minutes' time, we are going to be having a meeting by appointment with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to turn to his word. He'll be speaking to us. We are going to speak to him. We're going to begin each day as a day of adventure with him. That's what lovers do, don't they? When lovers meet, they say, look, we'll, we'll have an appointment. We'll meet at whatever place it is. We'll have an appointment, such as a day, we'll meet together. It's like what Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, once said, a believer is surely a lover. Yea, of all lovers, the most in love. We practice that with him, day by day, an appointment with him. We learn here from verse 7, where it says that the Lord is righteous, he loves justice. Upright men, it says, will see his face. Yes, we do that every day. And seeing his face prevents intimidation from setting in. So David himself was to make some catastrophic mistakes in his own lifetime, but his heart ached, and his heart also belonged to the Lord. Consequently, when you mention the name David to future generations, people say, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh, we know about David. Meant only one person. Listen, one person is all it takes. If it's Jesus they're serving, Such is the effect of his life within just one of his followers. By the power of the blessed Holy Spirit, one can be enough. You know, my grandpa, Tommy Buse, which is a long time back, when he was 14 years of age, listened to your great evangelist, D.L. Moody, who was then on a whirlwind tour of Britain. And Tuesday night, September the 26th, 1882, he stood up in the meeting to ask Christ to come into his life. That was grandpa. 
He once wrote these words, and they found their way into my children's, my own child's autograph album. I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. Well, that's in my own little autograph album that I had when I was a child. One of the earliest Christian martyrs after the time of the apostles was the second bishop of Antioch, a man called Ignatius. It was thought that he had known the apostle John. Ignatius was so concerned to take Jesus with him into every day that he was given the nickname of the God-bearer, Ignatius the God-bearer. And the effect of this courageous man was such that he brought him at the time of his trial before the Roman Caesar Trajan. And when the emperor said to him, dost thou then bear the crucified one in thy heart? Ignatius answered, even so, for it is written, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Well, Ignatius went to his death in 107 AD, being fed to the wild beasts in the Roman Colosseum. But he was remembered as the God-bearer. Hey, that can be you and me. That can be you and me every day. We want it to be. It only takes one person, some valiant individual who's not too afraid. Sometimes a whole street can be affected by that, or a dead fellowship, or a dormant village, or a neighboring family. Sure, that one individual may be completely unaware of how the power of Jesus is rubbing off from them unto others. And there are those we know all too well who die for their belief, in prison for their belief. We remember them for the shining example they are to us. They are not intimidated. Oh, in the center of Africa is a war-torn country called Burundi, where Pam, my wife, she actually has a godson there, bravely involved in missionary education. And in all of the troubles there, a faithful pastor, an African pastor one day, was facing death at the hands of non-Christian gang. He said, may I say something before I die? The answer was very quick, say it quickly. First, he said, I love you. Second, I love my country. Third, I will sing a song to you before I die. And with that, in their mother tongue, he sang all four verses of the hymn that begins, out of my sorrow, bondage and night, Jesus I come, Jesus I come. Then the shots rang out and he was gone. There's one witness present who told the story later. What can the righteous do? It's our generation now that must bear the torch of faithfulness. Today, in the UK at least, it's fair to say that most of our fellow citizens, including the bulk of our present-day members of Parliament, have become subject to a corporate mental blackout as regards the historical legacy of our past. The Reformation, 
might never have happened. The Ten Commandments might never have been given. Do you know the Ten Commandments? Let's rehearse them again over the next days or a few days, get them again into our minds. There's no longer any established standard in Britain for lawmaking or moral judgments. No longer is there any fixed definition of the word good. Far and away, the best thing we've got in the UK is our believing queen. We love her. As for you and me, just one person is enough when active witness is called for. After all, Christianity began its sensational expansion in Europe with just one home group, which we read about in Acts 17, verse 7. The power of that single piece of witness was enough to rattle an entire city and spark off a riot. That's the power that can result from one piece of valiant witness. So when the foundations are being destroyed, as I close off, what can the righteous do? Today we can get anxious over scientism, over the champions of atheism, anti-Christian belief systems. It's right to have these concerns, but never to become intimidated. Just to look at Christian history gives us the perspective. Threatening movements do come. They may have their periods of apparent ascendancy, even over decade after decade, invariably they go down in the end. When I was at theological college, I learned all about those prominent heresies in the first four centuries that sometimes seemed to be sweeping Christianity right out of existence. Oh, I did them all. There was Gnosticism, Docetism, Sabellianism, Apollinarianism, Eutychianism, Nestorianism. I did them all. And I guess you did, Pastor John. <laughs> but then, as one of your American preachers once put it, the lesson from the past is that all the isms eventually become wasms. And that's true. Just to look at history. Ah, oh, yes, exactly. Meanwhile, the church, like an old, old car, keeps on going. Sure, we've got an English atheist across the Atlantic called Philip Pullman. He declared on BBC Radio, Without a doubt, Christianity will cease to exist in a few years. I wonder how long he gives us. I wonder how long he gives himself. He'll probably have done better to listen to the historian T.R. Glover, who wrote, the final disappearance of Christianity has been prophesied so often as to be no longer interesting. <laughs> Let's look again at verse four then. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. That's the real foundation for the whole of our living in Christ's family everywhere. The book of Revelation is just full of it at the close of the Bible. Where is Satan when you read the book of Revelation? Everywhere. Bluffing, scheming, threatening, warring, mocking. Where is God all this time in the book of Revelation? God never leaves the throne. He's always got the center completely intact. As Festo Kavengeri of Uganda, a great revival leader, once said, Satan can roar and shout, but he has no authority to shake the throne on which Jesus is sitting. David had fastened his belief on this unshakable throne. Consequently, he stayed resilient, never got isolated. 
Stayed vigilant, never got deviated. Stayed valiant, never got intimidated. What to do when long-built foundations are being destroyed? Well, when a civilization falls, it falls from within. But it may not take too many people to stop that happening. I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. Let's just stay still for a moment. Take in what we've been thinking about. And then we're going to hear a song about the love of the Lord. Stay still for just a second. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to
Almighty God, Heavenly Father, dear Lord Jesus, blessed Holy Spirit, glorious Trinity, we are worshipping you on this Sabbath day with hearts, with music, with voices, with the word. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for your many reminders to us of the foundation on which we rest. We're deeply thankful as we go out now from this place shortly into another opportunity to serve you. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip us with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.